how well do you receive correction? When someone points out your faults, your mistakes, do you welcome it as helpful advice and put it into practice? Uh, or is your first reaction is your first reaction to take it personally, to get offended, maybe get defensive and give excuses or justifications? Or maybe your instinct is to attack back, to point out how the person offering the advice is hardly one to criticise because they've got plenty of faults too. That's our temptation, isn't it? We feel hurt or we're proud. But correction is good for us. It makes us better. The Bible is full of good advice about how to listen to correction, like Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates correction is stupid. And correction and instruction is especially important if it comes from God. If it's stupid to ignore advice from people, how much more foolish is it to ignore it from our Creator, from our Heavenly Father who lovingly disciplines us for our good? Hebrews 12.10 uh, who breathes out his word, the Bible, to teach, rebuke, correct and train us in righteousness so we'll be thoroughly equipped, 2 Timothy 3.16. Uh, James 1.22 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Listening and doing. That's what God's people should do when God speaks. But the story of the Bible is how we're not very good at listening. And that's what we learn from the history lesson that Stephen gives us in Acts chapter 7. It's a summary of the Old Testament. And it's long. We didn't read all of it. We missed a big section in the middle. In fact, it's the longest of all the speeches in the book of Acts. But it's got a very special focus which is all about how Israel refused to listen to God's message or God's messengers. And the sting in the tail, and what ends up getting Stephen killed, is he, he accuses his hearers of being just like their fathers because they refused to listen to Jesus, God's righteous servant. In fact, they murdered him. And so the question God is asking us is how well do we listen to God? More, most importantly, are we listening to his son Jesus and living in response to him? We'll come back to those questions, but let's start at the beginning. Uh, chapter 6, verse 8, we're introduced to Stephen. He's one of the seven Greek-speaking Jewish Christians that, who we met last week. He's been appointed to help distribute, to hand out the food to the needy. That's not all he does. He's full of the spirit and wisdom and God uses him to do miracles. And when he goes to his Greek-speaking synagogue, verse 9, he tells them all about Jesus. Probably, like Peter in chapter 2 and 3, showing how the Old Testament points forward to Jesus as the suffering Messiah who died for sin, who defeated death. And because he's got God's spirit and God's wisdom... Uh, those who disagree couldn't win the argument, verse 10. 
And so people lied and accused him, uh, see there in verse 11, of speaking words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. They take him to the Sanhedrin, that's the Jewish ruling council. Uh, Verse 12, there are more false witnesses who come and they say he was speaking against this holy place, uh, the temple, and uh, against the law. The three most important things in Judaism, God, the law, and the temple. And Stephen is accused of speaking against all three. It's hard to imagine any greater sin in Judaism. The high priests ask him if the charges are true, and in verse 2, Stephen begins his defence. It's a strange sort of defence. It's more of a prosecution than a defence. He accuses his accusers. Now, on the surface, it looks like a long history lesson of Israel. But if we look a little closer, we notice he does actually answer the charges against him. Firstly, the charge that he's against the temple, which they call this holy place. And secondly, that he's against God, Moses and the law. And his point about the first charge, that he's against this holy place, is there are lots of holy places. God has been at work all over the world. They think the temple is a holy place, but Stephen is asking the question, what's really a holy place? He begins, verse 2, by noticing that Abraham was in Mesopotamia when God appeared to him. God was there. And then he talks about all the places that Abraham went. He skips over Abraham, Isaac and Jacob And he slows down again when he gets to Jacob in verse 9, and we read, uh, sorry, Joseph, and we read in verse 9 that Joseph's brothers sold him as a slave into Egypt and that God was with him in Egypt. So God's in Egypt. Fast forward again through the famine in Egypt, Jacob and his brothers die, and they get brought back to Shechem in the Promised Land, and there's another special place, Shechem, verse 16. Fast forward again through the slavery in Egypt to Moses. Moses flees Egypt, goes to Midian, verse 29. Forty years later, verse 30, an angel appears to Moses in the burning bush at Mount Sinai and he hears God's voice who tells him, verse 33, to take off his sandals because the place he's standing on is holy ground. Mount Sinai is holy ground as well. Fast forward again. Moses brings Israel out of slavery. It's an amazing set of stories, but it's all summarised in one verse, 36, verse 36, where we see three more places where God is working through Moses. Moses did wonders and miracles, verse 36, in Egypt, in the Red Sea, and in the desert. The action slows down again in verse 40. The people rebel against Moses. And they ask Aaron, verse 41, to make an idol in the form of a calf. And they brought sacrifices to it and revelled in what their own hands had made. Notice what Stephen calls the idol, something made with hands. It's a common Old Testament insult about idols. And then in verse 44, Stephen turns his attention to the tabernacle, the tent, Uh, which was made, verse 44, as God directed Moses according to the pattern he'd seen. 
and the tabernacle travels all over uh, through the desert, wherever the people went, through the desert, into the promised land. And God was in all of those places as the tabernacle moved. Those places are holy. The tabernacle stayed in the land until King David arrived, verse 45. David wanted to find a dwelling place for God, verse 46. But in the end, it was Solomon who built a house for him, verse 47. And in verse 48, Stephen paraphrases or rewords Solomon's prayer at the opening of the temple. Stephen says, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. Now, now Solomon had actually said in his prayer that God doesn't live in this temple I have built. But Stephen describes the temple as a house made with human hands. Remember, that's what idols are made. They're made with human hands. So he's more or less calling the temple an idol. At least the way the Jews of his day were treating the temple as if it was an idol. And then to back it up, he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 49. Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Everything belongs to God. Everything is holy. God made it all. Forget something that's been made with human hands, the temple. The world has been made with God's hands. Stephen is saying that everywhere is holy ground. The Jews of his day had focused so much on Jerusalem and the Jews, they'd forgotten that God was God of the whole world, of every nation. And now in Jesus, says Stephen, the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. You don't need to come to a temple to meet God. God is everywhere. Now that's a great truth for us to remember, to rejoice in. Everywhere is holy. God is everywhere. Now, I don't know about you, it's been difficult with this building closed, not being able to meet with God's people. It's good to be back. But we don't go to a building to meet God, do we? God has been with us the whole time we've been away, the last three or four months. He's been with us. We don't need a certain ritual to do We don't need a mediator, a priest who stands up up there. We don't need to meet with a congregation to meet God. Because of Jesus' work, he's poured out his spirit and now God lives with us if we're Christian. Wherever we are, on the top of a mountain, under the sea, by ourselves, in a crowd, at midday, in the middle of the night, He hears us when we talk to him. I think sometimes we forget that. We undervalue it. We don't appreciate it. Let's rejoice in the privilege we have. Let's take advantage of it. Let's talk to God wherever we are. Let's rejoice in that. Well, that's Stephen's answer to the first charge. Remember, he's speaking against this holy place. In a sense, he agrees with them. He he is against what the temple has has become, 
But what about the second charge? Do you remember what it was? Speaking against God, Moses and the law. And we can summarise Stephen's response with this question. Who's really speaking against God and his leaders? So, go back to the start of chapter 7 and and we'll skim through it again and see what he says about rejecting God and his leaders. So, verse 9 of chapter 7, he says the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph. So they sold him to Egypt. They rejected the one God chose to save them from famine. Just like the Jews were jealous of Jesus. Fast forward to Moses, verse 20. Stephen says in verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would realise that God was using him to rescue them. But they did not. They didn't recognise the Saviour God had sent just like the Jews, hundreds of years later, didn't recognise Jesus. And then Stephen zooms in on one man's reaction to Moses' peacemaking efforts. Verse 27. Who made you ruler and judge over us? Stephen is building a case of God's people who reject God's leaders. Jump forward 40 years later to God's call to Moses on Mount Sinai. Stephen describes Moses in verse 35 like this. This is the same Moses they had rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge. He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself. They reject Moses. They reject God who sent Moses. And again, verse 36 Even though Moses led the people out of Egypt and, verse 38, received living words from God to pass on, verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him. Stephen is saying again and again, the sin of the forefathers was to reject God and his chosen leader, Moses. Fast forward through the story of the golden calf and the tabernacle, and Solomon building the temple. And look down to verse 51. Stephen reaches his conclusion. It's the point of his whole history lesson. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. The Sanhedrin accused Stephen, but now he accuses them. They're stiff-necked, their hearts are dead, their ears are dull. But it's not a physical problem, it's a spiritual one. They're proud, they refuse to listen to God's spirit. And that makes them just like their fathers, who refuse to listen to their leaders, like Moses and Joseph. They rejected their rescuers, persecuted their prophets, the prophets who'd predicted the Messiah. And then, at the end of verse 52, we see the evidence to Stephen's charge that they refused to listen. You betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Jesus. It's the worst sin of all, murdering the one that the law and the prophets point towards. You're worse than your fathers, I think Stephen's saying, rejecting the one God sent to rescue them. 
Well, I wonder how you would receive that correction if you heard that speech. Would you recognise it as great advice and accept it? Would you throw yourself on God's mercy? Well, that's what happened back in chapter 2. Peter's speech at Pentecost, the the crowd heard it. Uh, Peter says in verse 36, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord and Christ. How did the crowd respond? They're cut to the heart. And they say, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And they do, and they are, which is wonderful. That's what we should do as well when we hear that advice. But how do Stephen's hearers respond? Verse 54, they're furious at him. And they gnash their teeth. I'm not quite sure what that is, but it sounds bad. That doesn't bother Stephen. In the middle of the fury that's going on around him, God gives him a wonderful vision to strengthen him. Verse 55. Stephen looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said... I see heaven opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, that's not something that just happened that instant. Jesus is always king. Jesus is always watching over his people from God's right hand. And knowing the reality of that truth gives Stephen comfort and hope. It's true for us today. May we understand that reality so we can stand up courageously for our King. Did you notice Jesus is standing? He's not sitting at God's right hand, which is how he's described in other places. I think he's waiting to receive Stephen, to welcome him home, which is lovely. Did you notice Stephen calls Jesus the Son of Man? He's the only other person in the Bible, other than Jesus, who calls Jesus the Son of Man. But I think Stephen had seen, perhaps like no one else before him, that Jesus was more than just a Messiah for Jews only. Do you remember Daniel chapter 7? Jesus was the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, who'd been given all authority glory and sovereign power by the Ancient of Days. All nations, people of every language worshipped him. Daniel chapter 7 says the Son of Man is the King of every, everyone. Well, that's enough to drive the Sanhedrin wild. Uh, That Jesus is with God in heaven, verse 57. They cover their ears and they scream at him. It's like a two-year-old throwing a tantrum. (laughs) How ironic that God is correcting them by his spirit through Stephen and the correction is about how they refuse to listen to God's spirit and what do they do? They don't listen. They drag him out of the city and they stone him to death. And as they do, Stephen prays to Jesus Uh, He prays to the Jesus he can see waiting to welcome him home. 
Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Just like Jesus himself on the cross prayed, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then again, like Jesus, he loved his enemies. Verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. In other words, show them mercy. Grant them repentance and forgiveness. And that prayer was answered for at least one of those people watching because there was a young man, a young man named Saul who was looking after the coats. And he will end up becoming the most important human cause in how the gospel spread. He was the plant that grew from the seed of Stephen's death. We'll see next week more fruit that came because of that persecution, how it forced Christians to leave Jerusalem, but they spread the gospel of Jesus wherever they went, doing the thing the Sanhedrin were trying to stop. And the church grew, and Stephen's death began it. But back to the question we began with. How well do you accept correction? First, about how you treat Jesus. Israel's fathers rejected the rescuers God sent them. Is that you? In your pride and independence, have you said to Jesus, no thanks, I'm okay, I don't need your help. God sent his son because you're not okay. We're dead in our sin. We're helpless. We're bound for judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy, offers to make you alive with Christ, saving you by grace. What have you done with that advice? Now, many of us here have heard and received that advice and followed it. We're saved and forgiven. But we need to keep doing that. We need to keep listening to God's word to us in the Bible daily. Is hearing from God your top priority? Is it the first thing you do each day? How regular is your Bible reading? Jesus advised us, man does not live by bread alone but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is God's word what fuels your life? And when you read, are you expecting God to actually correct you? Here's a great prayer to pray before you start reading your Bible. God, command me. Speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Or one final question. How well do you receive correction from your brothers and sisters? We actually have a responsibility as family to correct each other. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ which I think is to love your neighbour 
We show love when we correct people. It's not hatred, it's love. We want to correct them for their good. That needs to be our motivation, not from pride, not from comparing ourselves uh, or putting someone uh, in their place, putting them down. I think that's what uh, verse 1 is saying when it says, watch yourselves or you, uh, or you also may be tempted. It's talking about comparing ourselves, thinking we're better. Or what about if you're on the receiving end of correction? Don't be like your fathers, Stephen says. Don't be stiff-necked. Don't be proud. Be humble instead. Listen before you speak. God gave us two ears and one mouth. Listen twice as much as you speak. Finally, how well do you receive correction? Uh, sorry. Uh, you've got two, mouth, two eyes and one mouth for a reason. Try not to take the advice personally. It's actually easier to receive advice if you know the person is doing it from love rather than another motive. But even if it's not given in love, even if they do it from a bad motive, it doesn't mean that they're wrong. They might be right. Prayerfully consider advice people give you. Look for the grain of truth in the midst of the other advice that's not right. Well, here's a hard one. Do you invite correction? Are there people that you can ask for advice? Do you ever say, how can I be a better husband? How can I be a better dad? How can I be a better public speaker? How can I be a better employee? God is at work in all sorts of situations, in all sorts of places. He's using all sorts of people to make you more like Jesus each day. Make sure you're listening. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, please help us to listen to you and to do what you say. Amen.